Let's begin with some prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we turn to You because we have no other God, and we sit under Your Word, and we sit under Your teaching, God, and we ask for Your Spirit to come down upon us this very moment, God, to soften our hearts and strengthen our minds and equip our eyes to see Your glory, to see Your Son who is high and lifted up, God. Could we see Your glory in this time? Through Your Word, through the movement of Your Spirit, God. We cannot conjure this up in and of ourselves, but we cast ourselves at Your feet. And we ask for Your will to be done. We pray this in the name of Your glorious Son. Amen. Perhaps some of you noticed we've had a little bit of snow recently. And with that, we gather up our children, we divvy out the shovels, we get them dressed, and we send them outside and say, have at it, boys and girls. Do your best. But we have one, this this same child who prays after family worship, we'll have prayer requests, and he always prays. Then one, he'd be able to fight in the Civil War and kill bad guys. He went to the Civil War in action, so that's his desire is to fight in the Civil War. To kill bad guys. And then he'd be able to fight a bear and a lion and kill it with his bare hands like David. That's his prayer request over and over, night after night. So we're like, I want a fruit of the Spirit or something. No, I want to, I want to kill people. I want to kill people. This same one. It's time to get dressed. And what does he do? He's flopping on the floor, rolling on the floor, doesn't want to get dressed. And of course, he's the last one out the door. But he's always the first one back in the house as well. He's the last one out and he's the first one in. But when he comes in, he gets the same hot chocolate just as much as everybody else, even though he didn't do as much work as anybody else because he's the last one out, the first one back in. But why does he get this from mom? Why does he get this same hot chocolate? Because it's of her grace. It's of her love. It doesn't matter how much snow he shoveled. Quite frankly, none of them do a good job, but it's the point that they're they're out doing it, right? So that's the same thing that we see here in our text this morning. Christ, he's, he's calling people. He's calling them to salvation, and then he's sending them as well into his vineyard. So our main idea that we're going to be working under is what? Get to work. It's pretty easy. Get to work. We're going to see this. Verses 1 through 7, we're going to be seeing the gathering of labors. Verses 8 through 15, we see the grumbling of labors. And then finally in verses 17 through 19, we see the work of Christ. The gathering of labors, the grumbling of labors, and the work of Christ. Just to recap where we've been going throughout this gospel is we see Christ moving and proclaiming this kingdom. And if you go back to chapter 13, he begins speaking of these parables of this kingdom. And and you see that the kingdom is is rich and it's fully orbed, isn't it? It's not just one or or two-dimensional. No, it's, it's fully orbed. So just as one sun can illuminate the whole earth, because it's not flat, sorry guys, it's not flat. So the whole sun can, one sun can illuminate the whole earth. So one parable doesn't quite capture the whole teaching of what it means to be the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of heaven. And we see the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. In our community group, we're going through Knowing God by J.F. Packer. And this last time, we did chapter 3, the knowing God and being known by Him. And he details in there how our relationship with Christ is is fully orbed. So it's, yes, it is like, it is like a father and son, but that doesn't fully capture it. It's it's also like a shepherd and his sheep, but then there's this aspect of uh, submission as well. So it's like a, a king and his servant, but there's this intimacy with Christ as well. So it's like husband and wife and all of these different relationships are needed to describe our relationship with God in the same way. All of these different parables are needed to explain as, as if they were different suns around the earth to explain, to illuminate this glorious kingdom that we might be able to fully see. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And we might be able to see the riches of God's creation here. So it is here. And if you go back into 13, you see this first parable is, is about the sower. And we see that we're challenged to what? To be good soil. To receive the word of God, to, to bear much fruit, to, to bring forth that 30, 60, 100 fold. To bring it forth. And we see it's the kingdom of heaven is also like the, the wheat and the tares, where bad seed is cast amongst the good. And, but we know as we live in here, the city of God, within the city of man, we know that there's evil among us, sure. But there will be a final judgment. And we know that. It will be justice in the kingdom. Maybe not right now, but there will be a final justice. And you also see the kingdom is, is like the mustard seed. There's another, another sun to illuminate what it is to be part of this kingdom of heaven. It's like a mustard seed, and it's, it's insignificant, and it's small. It's, you, can, you can just pass it through your hand and not even notice it. And it starts small, but it grows and it grows and it's, it's planted and it's watered. But God, God gives it growth, just like our church. It grows and then it grows and you see the kingdom of God growing and moving until it becomes this place where it becomes the focal point of men and women to see it and birds as well come and land on it. You see that the kingdom is also like yeast and just a little bit. Just a little bit can leaven the whole dough as it works its way through it. But the kingdom is also like a treasure hidden in a field and the pearl of great price where you see that it joyfully demands all that you have. You see the treasure in the field and, well, then you sell everything you have. And you go buy the field and then you have the treasure, right? He joyfully goes forth and sells all that he has. Same thing with the merchant who sees this. This pearl of great price, and he sells all that he might have so he can have this beautiful pearl. That is the kingdom. Finally, in chapter 13, we see that the kingdom of heaven is like, like a net being cast out. They still do this in the Sea of Galilee. You see them right before sunrise. They're casting nets and dragging them into the boat, catching fish, and they separate the good ones from the bad ones. And you see that again, there will be a final judgment. The good ones will go on to their purpose for which they were created and that is for us to glorify God forever. But the evil ones will be separated and thrown into the furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see these Gospels, but to properly, or we see these parables throughout the Gospels, but to properly understand them, we must realize that these are calls to action. We cannot remain idly by, we cannot stand idly by, claim to have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling within us, hear these parables and remain idle. 
to stand idly by and to do nothing with it. So it is also with our text that we have this morning. So let's go back to the text. Verses 1 through 7. The gathering of, uh, the, uh, the gathering of laborers we have here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about in the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again in the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And this is quite a picture here. There's quite a story that's laid before us. And to be good students of the text, we, what do we do? We, we ask why. Why is this here? Why another kingdom parable? Really? We've been, we haven't had any for several chapters now. Why another kingdom parable? And you see that later in the text here, they're going up to Jerusalem. They've come down from the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan, and now they're making their ascent up to Jerusalem, are they not? And it's this final time that they're going to be going to Jerusalem, and they've learned much about the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God. They've learned much about it. But now we have this capstone that is given to them to provide this arch with the strength and the durability. And did you guys catch what it was in the previous chapter, right at the end? That the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So when you go and, and the disciples are grumbling among themselves and they're asking, well, who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What's the answer? Well, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Okay, well... Who's, who's the greatest leader then? Well, it's then the greatest servant. And then, and then who do I love? Well, you love your enemies. And not only do you love them, but you make the very difficult thing to actually pray for them as well. So here we are coming to Jerusalem. You see this, the, the, the somberness, the, the seriousness of what is going on as Jesus is knowing as you see in Luke, as he set his face towards Jerusalem for this final time. And he's giving his, his disciples these teachings, these last precious moments that he's having with them. And he's giving it to them. And he sees this capstone to, to hold all of these other teachings in place. And he tells them that the first will be last and last will be first. And it holds everything in place. So they know what it is to, to love the kingdom of God and to display the kingdom of God and then to also to live in the kingdom of God. And that's why our text begins with the word for. This is an illustration of the point in the previous chapter, the last being first and the first being last. That's why we begin with for. It's illustrating this truth. So what's the story then? Well, so you have this master, and, he, and he's going out of his house, and he's, he's not simply sending enough. Well, yes, he could have done that, but he, he's going and he's doing it himself because it's of great importance. And it's of such gravity that he doesn't even go to the marketplace once and gather workers and then send them out and consider his day done. No, he, he goes back. He goes back five different times throughout the day to get workers. And those who heed his call early in the morning, he agrees with them 
to work for a, a denarius, which is a, a, way, a day's wage for that time. And, and ironically, if you, if you go and you want to buy a denarius now, eh, it costs about a day's wage, actually. So and then early in the morning, he goes and agrees with them, tells them he'll give them a day's wage for a day's labor. And then he goes back in the third hour, and you notice there is no agree, there's no, ex, no true exchange. He just tells them, what does he say? Whatever is right, I'll give you. Verse 4. And then he goes back again in the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Why? Because the work is so valuable and the progress could never be fast enough. And he gives them the same promise, does he not? And finally, when all hope seems of being lost, of if you're standing there in the marketplace, remaining idle all day, when all hope seems to be lost, that the call will not go out to you, he comes back. Does he not? In the eleventh hour. And he finds some and he asks them and he says, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they say to him, Because no one has hired us. Isn't that the, the, the true drive and inspiration? Isn't that who you want to hire, right? No, no one's I'm just standing here. Even those, the ill-equipped ones, he says, You too, go in the vineyard as well. So this that's the story, but what are we seeing here? Obviously, it's, it's pointing to something else, isn't it? Well, the master, who is the master? It's God, is it not? And the laborers, that's you, right? Going off into the vineyard. Then the vineyard is not just a vineyard, but no, 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 the vineyard is the kingdom of God. So this is not just some fictitious master who's zealous for his vineyard. No, no, no. This is God who is zealous for his kingdom. That is what's going on here. But it's not just his vineyard that he's zealous for. It's also the laborers as well. He goes and he goes and he's going back. He goes early in the morning. He goes in the third hour. He goes in the sixth hour. He goes in the ninth hour. He goes in the eleventh hour as well. Right at the time when you think it would be too late. Thus, even the call of God goes out to you, does it not? Perhaps this is early in the morning for you. You haven't heard the call of God before, but you must, you must come and you must go in the lake, in the vineyard. And you must heed this call and go work. Or perhaps you've been standing idly by. And it's the eleventh hour, and you've seen much of your life go by, go by, go by. And you've remained idle in the marketplace, and you know it. There is an abundance of work to be done. An abundance of work to be done, my friends, in the kingdom of God. Do not, listen to me, do not be an unemployed Christian. Not even for a day, not even for a moment shall you be a laborer of God and standing idly by in the marketplace. Don't be the one who say, well, no one came and hired me. No, no, my friend. Do not be unemployed. He is calling you and he is calling you to work. The very fact that he is a master and he is hiring him as his servant means that we are to work, does he not? He not only calls us to salvation, but he calls us to work as well. Bonhoeffer had it really well in his cost of discipleship. And he says, 
When Christ bids him, calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is what is held before us, it is it not? That is what is held before us as a church. And I, I hope that you see it. It would be so easy to just stand aside and say, well, there isn't much to be done. I'm sure the grapes will be harvested and the wine's already been pressed. Well, no, my friends, look around us. In this city, this city, which is not very big, there are 85,000 souls destined for hell. You see them when you walk to work. You see them when you're in the grocery store. You see them when you're getting coffee. Don't you see them? Doesn't your heart break for them? It must. God is calling you. He's calling you to go out and to work. It's, are we so important? We, we, it's easy to think, oh, there must not be much to be done, but the gospel is moving forth. It's, well, what's the whole movement of the gospel? Just so it could come to you and then go no further? Are you the crowning jewel of the gospel movement throughout history? It can come to you. Oh, and then it's met its end. It's met its crown jewel. It doesn't need to go any further. No, my friends, what are you? You are a conduit for the gospel. To hear the gospel, repent, turn to Christ, and pass it on to others. That is what you were made for, my friends, and that is what you are being called into as a Christian. Look at your hands. You've heard the call of Christ. You, you know that you should be in the vineyard. Well, look at your hands. Are they calloused? Are they the calloused hands of a laborer of Christ? We would, growing up, we would often go to the farm in, in a family farm in western Minnesota. And perhaps it was just because I was younger, uh, but my grandfather was just this mountain, this mountain of a man, right? And his his feats of strength were folklore and around around the county, and. His hands were like the paws of a bear. And they were just thick, like sausages, you know. They weren't fingers, they were like sausages coming out of his hands. And they were, they were stained and they were dirty and they were grease stained and perhaps a little nicotine stained as well. And they weren't going to come clean and they were calloused. And what was that a sign of? They were a testament that he loved his Land, his 160 acres. He loved that land. He loved his domain. He loved his kingdom. What about our hands? What about your hands? Are they calloused? Are they sore? Have they bled for the work of Christ? Read your Bible, my friends. Read your Bible. Read history. The Christian life is has not been marked by comfort and ease. Has it? Look at look at Moses. Exodus 3, he's called with the burning bush. From that time, all the way up to the end of Deuteronomy 34, when he dies in Mount Nebo, he is devoted to working for the kingdom of God. Is he? Yes, he is. He's going forth. And does he have joy and happiness? Yes, he does. He has joy and happiness joy and happiness, but he does not have ease and he does not have comfort. And in our culture, we equate the two. We think if I have ease and I have comfort, well then I'll, I'll be happy and I'll have some joy. But no, the Bible clearly separates them. 
ease and comfort. You do not find those amongst the people of God. Joy and happiness, well, then you certainly do. Not only the Bible, look in history, even recently. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, he spent his life working in the vineyard of God. 51 years, 51 years in China, learning the language, learning the culture, integrating, integrating and living with the people. Would have been, would have been easy to live in the missionary compounds. But no, he, he grew out his hair to, to blend in. He learned the language and he learned it really, really well. And he became one of the people. 51 years in China, he lost his wife. He buried four children in China. He almost killed in the Chinese Civil War. But his life burned bright for the gospel. So how then do we reach China, people ask. And this is what he wrote. China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and the souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Even life itself, even life itself must be secondary. Oh, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to have awkward neighbors. I don't want to have awkward conversations with my neighbors or coworkers. No, no, no. Even life itself is, is secondary to the kingdom. Do we not? Do we not delight in the glory of God so much that we cannot help but to bring other people to also delight in this? Do you not view Christ in this same way? Does this not stir your heart and your affections to bring everybody you can, the lady who makes your coffee drinks, whatever it might be, to bring her in, to behold this wondrous mystery of God? Check your heart. Does this not stir your affections? Does it not keep you awake at night? Do you know that your neighbors are going to hell? Your co-workers are going to hell? Many of us have family members who are going to hell. Be a laborer in the vineyard, my friends. Be a laborer in the vineyard. Such is the call for us to go forth into this city. The life itself must be second. Comfort and ease. There will be no such thing. That the gospel will go forth. And Christ will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. That is the work of the kingdom. So we see this before. So the call is to, it's pretty easy. Get to work, right? So we see the the gathering of laborers. But these laborers are human. So what do you also see? The grumbling. The grumbling of laborers as well. Let's just read uh, this this first part of it here, starting verse 8. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last. Remember, this is going back to 1930. Beginning with the last and going up to the first. And when those who were hired in the eleventh hour came, each of them received, what did they receive? A denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at their master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, but you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching of the heat. Leave it there. A degree of brevity, and let's let's go over this here. Remember how this is going back. 
But the, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, right? And here's a picture of this very thing happening. Those in the eleventh hour, they were called, and what did they receive? They received the denarius. Did they not? Same thing with those in the ninth hour. Same thing with those in the sixth hour. Same thing with those in the third hour as well. They received the denarius. Having the, remember, they had no agreement, but he said in verse 4, whatever is right, whatever is right, I'll give it to you. And then finally, we received to those, he received those in, his foreman does, those who were working the full day in the vineyard. And what do they do? Well, if they're like us, they would have expected to receive much more, right? But they grumbled. They received the denarius that they were promised, and then they grumbled at their master because they wanted more. And then first impression, this does seem to be unfair, right? Right? They were only there for less than an hour. They were called at the 11th hour. That means they walk to the vineyard. They get all the tools. They start working. And then it goes off. Then they're done. So they were there less than an hour. And here's this other group. There they are. Bearing the burden of the day and the scorching of the heat. It makes sense that those who work longer work harder and produce more, should receive more. And this this makes sense until you realize that there's something far greater going on here. That this this is a picture of something else that's going on. That this is a picture of, of the Jews first being called into the kingdom of God and working and laboring for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then these Gentiles, us, these latecomers coming in, being grafted in, as you would see in Romans. And God is calling them, calling them in to work and to serve. And thus, they receive a payment that is not just a denarius in this picture that it's pointing to, but no, no, no. What they are receiving is actually the grace of God, is it not? So, do we, do we go out and do we work in the labor, and, and work and labor in the vineyard? Yes, we certainly do. But the wage is not of our own efforts. It is the work of another, and that is Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 4. He writes, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him, not as what is due, but as righteousness. So, for then, for us, or for them, to grumble against what they have received from God is to press against the sovereign hand, the sovereign plan of God, to press against that with this platform of their own works that they've built, which is shambles, really. But isn't it the sad state of men, of our hearts, of their hearts, that we would rather get what we deserve We would rather get what we deserve from our own works rather than feasting upon the grace of God. You see, Paul also writes to the Romans that if it is grace, if it is of grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace if it was based on works. And I cannot think of a more timely message, my friends, for our culture. When we, our culture is not content with what is given to them by God. We demand more and more. 
And rather than being grateful for finding some work, we would rather employ ourselves with nothing. But the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, not of culture. The Word of God doesn't go forth and, and pierce culture. No, no, no. The Word of God goes forth and pierces your heart. So this is not a message to culture. This is a message to you, my friend. It is written to you. Are you not content with your life? Are you grumbling at what God has given you? Grumbling that you want something greater. Grumbling that you want some more. When you are grumbling, just remember that God, that the page is not a denarius, the wage is the grace of God. So when you're grumbling against God, you're declaring that He is certainly not enough to sustain you, and that if that is true, He was certainly, this grace of God was not enough to save you as well. This is the grace of God enough for your life. Is it? Then prove it. Stop grumbling. And what God has given you, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, it doesn't really matter in the end when you realize that you are feasting upon the grace of God. So if your career is not a career, if it's nothing more than a job, or if you're looking for a spouse or hoping for children, then it's fine. And we work and we labor in the vineyard. But whatever a lot might be, we delight in it because we know it is truly the grace of God that we feast upon. We never grumble. We never grumble. Who who could we be to grumble when we have the greatest thing? You have the grace of God poured out to you through His Son, Jesus Christ, through His death, the burial, resurrection, the ascension back to the Father. You have the grace of God. And what do we do? We grumble. We look at these guys. We call them fools. We look at ourselves and we say, well, it's a little different. No, this is us, my friends. This is you. We're grumbling, we're ill-content because we don't see the richness of God's grace that is held before us. Do not grumble. We've walked through, we've seen it. The gathering of labors, the grumbling of labors. Now let us finally wrap it up here with this. The work of Christ. Verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Remember, remember, that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And we, we just talked about how we will grumble about it, assuming, presuming that we deserve more. Why? Because our, great, our works are so great, aren't they? Right? So we presume that we get more, we should have more, but here is Christ, and rather than demanding more, what is He doing? He's humbling Himself. God of God, light of light, true God from true God, eternally begotten of the Father, through whom and for whom all things are made. Here He is, coming out of the throne room of God and humbling Himself. Not just humbling Himself, as you see in Philippians, but humbling Himself to the point of death. Not only death, but death on the cross. He's humbling himself. You see that it's God's plan to redeem his people, to redeem you through his son. 
And so he, sure, here he is. He's delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they condemn him to death. And he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and flogged and crucified. And that is our death that we deserve. Why? Because this, this, this edifice of work that we, that we build our lives upon, that we presume is so great, the one that we think is so great, that we grumble against God, that he hasn't given us enough. Why? Because we look to our own works. No. These works lead us to death. They bring us to death. But here is Christ who comes and He dies our death, does He not? But thankfully, that's not the end. Always read to the end. And He'll be raised, and He was raised on the third day. So, we no longer look to our works, do we? No, we don't look to our own, but we look to another. We don't look to our own perfection, but we look to the perfection of another. And that is Christ and Christ alone, my friends. So you see in Isaiah 45, he says, look to me. The call goes out. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. What is it? To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And he also writes in verse 25, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and show glory. So my friends, go to the vineyard and work. Go with your calloused hands and with your bruised hearts. Go day after day and week after week and devote yourselves to the work of the kingdom of heaven. Pour out your life and work. For the kingdom of heaven, but trust only in the finished work of Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we we pray that you would give us eyes to see this vineyard that is around us, that we would go and be laborers. This upcoming week, that our lives would be poured out, God. That we would do things that we would have never thought capable, God. That we would do them by your Spirit, moving us, urging us, nudging us along, God. To, sit, to, to, to have the boldness to share the gospel. The same thing that other people did for us, God. I pray that we would not think of ourselves as so important that the gospel can end with us. But that we would pass it on, God that you might be worshipped and glorified, God, that we would think of ourselves as nothing but your instruments in this city to reach your people for whom your Son has died, God. Could you send us forth in this vineyard? Have our lives poured out, God, but let us always keep our eyes fixed upon you and your work of your Son in whom we will trust and whom we will worship forever and forever. Amen.